A few weeks ago, many of us watched in horror the video of a black man who died after being kicked out of an ambulance when the ambulance worker called the police on him. Who saw that video? Yeah, a few of you have. Curious about how this could happen, Spark took a look at the full recording that showed policemen arriving on the scene after two white female ambulance workers called for help in kicking him out. The footage shows the back of the ambulance open and one of the two women standing outside the ambulance saying, I don't know what is wrong with him, but he will not get out of our truck and he's got to go. I don't know what he is going to do, but we are not taking him anywhere. However, in the footage that pans, you see a man sitting in control in the back of an ambulance. And when the police arrive, they say to him, sir, it's a wrap. Looks like they want you out. And then as the man appears to be rubbing a sore spot on his own shoulder, the police officer speaks more sternly to him and says, no games, and finally, get out. The man tells the police, I couldn't breathe. And you'd freak out too if you couldn't breathe. The police officer says, yeah, I hear you. I'd probably try to control myself a little bit better. As the black man gets ready to exit, he's heard grunting and his voice raspy. He begins to put on first one coat and then another, making a last ditch effort for transportation to the hospital. He says to the officer, will you take me to the hospital, man? For which the officer says, no. And the female ambulance worker says, you told us you had pain from drinking water and you came at me, you jumped at me and my partner and demanded oxygen and you would not let me go. She went on to say, we tried to take you, but that was just unacceptable. There was no reason for this and there was no issue. At which point he made his way to a nearby bench. There unattended, he collapsed and fell to the ground on a cold night. Footage showed him being ignored for an entire two minutes by both ambulance medical workers and police personnel. And a little over two weeks after the incident, the man died. For white people who saw it, there was much outrage. But for people of color who looked like me, it triggered trauma. These invisible wounds that are often caused by racial trauma in communities of color, often many times in isolation. Dr. Ken Hardy wrote a new book called Racial Trauma, Healing the Invisible Wounds. Recently, he gave an interview about his book, and he said this, I think that we live in the context of racial oppression, almost like a noxious gas we can't see that infiltrates us. On top of that, it is compounded by the fact that in our society, we have a tendency to deny the significance of race, which is a lethal combination. He went on to say that to have people of color subjected to such conditions that are oppressive and have a broader social cultural context we are in, deny it, is harmful. There was clearly something wrong with this man, but for him, they made his skin color the disease a practice that goes way back for people of color, and especially black people in this country, through the practice of white supremacy ideology embedded in our systems. His crime was that he touched her, a white woman, and wouldn't let her go, demanding oxygen. He wasn't demanding money. He wasn't asking for jewelry. 
He was asking for oxygen, an opportunity to breathe. That touch criminalized him in a system that says it is there to help save lives. But for him, that very system took his life because he could not control himself in a health crisis when he was feeling distress. Imagine for a minute what it would mean if there was an expectation across the board that people experiencing health crisis must control themselves a little bit better in order to be assessed, treated, or given any help. If that was the case, we'd never attend to pregnant women getting ready to give birth. We wouldn't rescue people who are drowning. We wouldn't treat people who have chest pain or have severe breathing issues. Because people in healthcare crisis often show up with a distress response. I grew up with an asthmatic COPD mother. And I think about her when I saw that video because she would often become very aggressive and distressed when she couldn't breathe and needed medical attention. Now I have to admit, this was hard for me, but I'm so grateful that in moments like this, I appreciate the story in this gospel today. When Jesus encounters a man in medical distress, he has leprosy, a debilitating, painful, isolating disease that affects the skin, his economic opportunities, the social tables that he can sit in. His, his skin color has been designated a disease and dangerous by his community and all the systems around him in particular the priestly system, the political system, the religious and the social systems that he would have been part of. He's required to announce himself, to give people a chance to avoid him, to maybe change the side of the street they walk on when they see him, to maybe toss him some change, or even hurl an occasional slur at him if he isn't a rich leper because rich lepers got treated differently than poor lepers. But there are several things that I like about this story. One is that it starts with the leper engaging in conscientious objection. He has been required to announce himself unclean, unclean, not to announce his name, but to define himself by the condition of his skin the social assumptions that were made by, about him. Not his name, not the content of his character, and this man refuses to play the game. He comes right up to Jesus. No announcement that he's unclean or that he's a leper. He simply comes and he kneels down and he begs Jesus for help out of his distress, his health crisis that has turned his life upside down. If you wish, he says to Jesus, you can make me clean. Notice that Jesus doesn't call the police on him. Jesus doesn't make judgments about his posture of desperation. He doesn't even become irritated that he approached him with a contagious disease unannounced. Jesus is moved by compassion in the way that we're all called to. Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches him and he says, I do will it, be made clean. 
I love this because this is the best gift that Jesus could have given him. Yesterday, I attended Mental Health Center's annual retreat with volunteers who serve clients in the mental health center. In one segment of our sharing, one of the questions that volunteers were asked to reflect on was, what have you given in your work? And one of the volunteers said, there was a patient that I saw who had been labeled with the diagnosis of bipolar all of his life by family and therapists and friends, and that labeling was causing him great pain because it was used to dismiss him. She said, I told him that you have ups and downs, but you're not bipolar by the clinical sense. She said, everybody has ups and downs, and she watched a sense of peace come over him. He finally felt seen. The volunteer told me what I gave him was the gift of taking away the label and the stigma. And that is what Jesus does today in this gospel. He doesn't live in the stigma or the labels created for this man. He leans into the humanity created for him. Jesus teaches us how to take a different pathway for the vulnerable, how to love those who are labeled and treated as lepers in our society, who carry stigmas around their designated social identity, whether it is race or class or sexuality or documented status. He teaches us not to punish poverty, isolation, and skin color, but how to move willfully with compassion, how to take risks for liberation, how to sign up for the healing the world and not adding more burden to it. This week, I attended a talk on the impacts of structural racism at Nazareth College. Jill Paperno is a lawyer and chief strategy officer of Empire Justice Center. And she presented her work on ending pretextual traffic stops from a policing blueprint that she acknowledged was patterned after slave patrols from the antebellum South. The research showed that many of these stops had little to do with traffic safety. In fact, officers can pull people over for minor infractions like hanging a graduation tassel or air freshener on a rearview mirror, or this new one that I learned of, not putting your turn signal on 100 feet before turning. How many got that ticket? <laughs> got two. Jill Paternal told us that in her years of being a lawyer, she only saw those tickets given to black people in her entire career. And so she said these excuses were used as pretextual to conduct a search to go fishing for other crimes. She said not only are these low-level traffic stops unnecessary, unfair, and biased, but they also create unnecessary opportunities for confrontation that can be dangerous for both officers and motorists. These stops, she said, also lead to community distrust and take resources away from more important public safety needs, while rarely helping police to solve crimes. And then she shared a report with us from the National Association of Defense Lawyers that said this. They said African Americans in these pretextual stops are subject to both non-lethal and lethal use of force at disproportionate rates. In fact, she said the young black men were 21 times more likely to be killed by police 
than were young white men. Even when no arrest is made and there is compliance, the research showed that there are 21.2% more likely to experience some form of force. In studying the impact on the African-American community as it relates to this kind of structural and systemic racism, they found that these encounters with policing systems that often begin with pretextual stops create an entree to look for something more and has lasting impact on the physical and mental health of black people, their education, their employment opportunities, their financial wellness, their civic engagement, and their sense of community, all beginning with pretextual stops. Candace Lucas also presented that day, but she presented a hopeful report for us from the Rays Commission that offered five systemic solutions to end structural racism. And here's what they are. She said, we could create and invest in sustainable economic opportunities in black and Latinx communities to promote and maintain self-sufficiency, entrepreneurship, and advancement. That was great news because the GBI program that we were administering came out of that recommendation. And we're hoping to create a permanent GBI program for households with school-aged children when that pilot is over. The second thing they offered and proposed is that we implement and incentivize practices and programs that increase racial and ethnic diversity and cultural competency of employees. Here at Spiritus, we live that out by implementing racial justice training for our leadership. We've hired three people of color on our parish staff. We've added people of color in diversity to lead our parish enrich ministries. We've integrated the practice of restorative justice in circles for racial harm done. And we've added Juneteenth as an organizational holiday. The third thing that they propose is that we end practices that disproportionately drain resources from black and Latinx communities. The fourth is to decentralize services and to embed them in trusted agencies throughout the community. And we saw this from the county and the city in the decision to use ARPA fund dollars to support and resource many BIPOC organizations in our city that is doing great work. And the final one is to embed accountability measures in all policies to ensure equity and fairness across all services, programs, and delivery models, making sure that accountability in systems is important in bending the arc of justice. So maybe what you're already doing in addition to that, you may want to consider proposing some of these or implementing some of these recommendations. Dr. Hardy, who does extensive work with people of color in family therapy says, I stop asking people of color what is wrong with them. And now I treat hidden racial traumas by asking what happened to you? What hurts? He's learned to trace their racial trauma to culminations of massive onslaughts, he says, of dignity assaults, both micro and macro, within systems they experience. And Jesus engages in solutions today. He doesn't add to the burden. And when we look at his life and we follow him, 
we too are called to engage in alleviating not only personal suffering, but systemic and community suffering as we follow Jesus. It is why we hold on to the theme for our annual fundraising concert with Spark at the end of the month, and we call it Love and Justice, Love and Justice Three. It is also why this year we are hosting Dr. James Sanders as our keynote speaker on reparations for New York State. You see, Jesus touches this man with leprosy, with the touch of God, with the touch of love, and leprosy left him immediately. Jesus put himself in jeopardy by touching him. He took risks to give him his life back to a man who had existed outside of his community, on the margins because of the color of his skin. Jesus ends up trading places with him when he takes those risks. He wants the man to be silent about his transformation and his liberation. He wants him not to tell his testimony. But this is no time to be silent. Have you ever been able to hold your peace about what God has done for you? It becomes a time of celebration, a time of calling a community into the sacred work that look what God has done. And when this leper is asked, asked Jesus to be made clean, he isn't just asking for personal cleansing. He's also asking for cleansing of a systems that impacted his life. And that is the gift that Jesus gave him. My grandmother used to say, baby, we have to clean up what we have messed up. And sometimes we have to clean up what other people have messed up. It will take the courage, friends, of all of us, the same courage that it took for Jesus to repel the haunted histories of discrimination and injustice against the lepers of his day he changed the system of response for him. Just as we at Corpus Christi, when we changed the religious system to welcome everybody, we ousted discrimination against women, LGBTQ plus folks, divorced people. We offered communion to everyone. We changed the system of response. We've created a new blueprint for our church, and we can create a new blueprint for the world, for the systems that are hurting us. And so when, as people of faith, we hear people of color and those living on the margins under the weight of our systems of racism and oppression ask the question that Jesus was asked, when they say to us, if you will it, you can make us clean. Like Jesus, we can respond with a resounding, I do will it, and through the work that we commit to together, we will make our world that is tainted by the horrors of racism and discrimination and oppression and haunted, haunted histories clean.